As we begin a new year, we're going to be looking as a congregation at New Year's resolutions that we might wish to make and to prepare us to do that. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the second chapter, where we'll take as our reading verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, beginning the reading of God's word at the first verse. Do hear this and heed it as it indeed is the very word of God to you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlestands. I know thy works and thy toil and steadfastness, and that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. And thou hast steadfastness, and bear for my sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will remove thy candlestand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And thus far the reading of God's word. Time's upon us to um, contemplate the coming of a another new year and thus reflect on resolutions that we may wish to make for this coming year. I think everyone can think of ways in which they hope the next year will be better than the one that they had in the past. And that's why we resolve to do things. We resolve to exercise more regularly or to lose weight. We resolve to patch up a family squabble or to make more money or to write more letters or to give up smoking or to read more books to watch less TV, to improve a skill that God has given us, to pursue a hobby that pleases us, to break bad habits, to learn new ones. We make New Year's resolutions. And this habit of making such resolutions has behind them implicitly, not always acknowledged, implicitly a Christian outlook on life and on time. For you see, the Bible teaches us that the course of time is not to be passed idly by the children of God. The course of time provides the opportunity for renewal, for constant growth in the Lord, for what we call in theology progressive sanctification, for extending the kingdom of Christ, and all preparing for the great and the final day of reckoning. What we do at the end of every year, hopefully, is have a little small day of reckoning so we can look at our lives, we can pray for God's grace and power to make the changes that should be made, that we would prepare for that great and final day of reckoning that is coming. Christians know that they are to redeem the time because the days are evil. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 5.16. We're to buy back or buy up the time knowing that we live in evil days. 
I bet it's true for you, I know it's true for me, that we spend a great deal of time either watching the TV or looking at the news or considering what happens in the circle of acquaintances around us, and we say, boy, what a wicked world we live in. And we do. You may remember last year at this time I, I preached my protest against humanity using last year's news as the occasion to remind you that the Bible teaches that human nature is not just fallen in a mental way, oh, to err as human, but human nature is perverse, it's distorted, it's wicked, it's cruel, it's unjust, it's unfair. We look at the world around us and we say, it is so wicked. The Bible tells us that we are to buy up the time because we live in a wicked world. So often Christians have the negative part down. We see the wickedness of the world. We don't see, therefore, that we've got to change our lives because we live in a wicked world. Because you don't change your lives, I don't change my life because the church in general is willing to float downstream with this wicked world. We don't buy up the opportunity. We don't seize the, the day and we therefore live in a wicked world. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, Press on toward the mark unto the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In that text, Paul says that he forgets the things that are behind, thinking his own life, particularly his self-righteousness and the years he spent vainly thinking he was serving God by his own goodness and so forth. He forgets those things that are behind. He calls them rubbish. And he says he presses on now for only one thing. Paul has only one thing in mind, and that is that he would be winning the prize of winning the prize, running the race for the sake of Jesus Christ. He strives for the upward call of God in Christ. In 2 Peter 3.18, the Apostle Peter says that we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To grow in grace. Again, um, I have to step on some toes, but so many of you, if you think about it seriously, have reached a certain plateau spiritually and you're satisfied with that. Now, you would not say you're satisfied. You would say, oh, it's, it's a good idea. It's an ideal, it's an unrealistic thought, but oh, wouldn't it be nice if I were to grow a bit? Don't strive to do that. And here's this command that we are to grow by the grace of God and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, believers, if they are thoughtful and sensitive, the Spirit has given them tender hearts, will heed the rebuke of Hebrews 5.12, that by reason of the time, they are expected to advance in understanding and service, so that, as the author of Hebrews says, when by reason of time you should be teachers, it turns out that you have need again that someone teach you the elementary principles of the faith. What I want you to focus on is that expression, by reason of the time. You see, the Lord expects us to grow and to grow up in the faith. And so as time goes on, he expects more of us. He wants to see that just like we would want our children biologically to get stronger and bigger bodies and healthier bodies, so God wants to see that in terms of our faith. By reason of the time, teachers, 
the author of Hebrews says, but instead you have to have people remind you over and over again of what the faith is all about. And so this habit of making New Year's resolutions, the idea that with the passing of time there ought to be a reckoning, there ought to be a striving for that which is better, even though it's been secularized and people have forgotten what lies behind it, this is implicitly a Christian perspective on time and on Christian living, excuse me, on human living. And so it's only appropriate that we should stop and take account of our lives periodically to see where we're going, to what we're giving our resources, and how we're progressing. I wish every single one of you today, after you've had your dinner and your nap, I have to take a nap on Sundays too, if you take care of those obligations and you finally have some free time in private, I really hope that you'll be good Puritans. You know, maybe you haven't kept a spiritual diary or a personal diary throughout this year. You know, you can still stop and begin with January. Maybe take out your old calendar, you know, and just thumb through it and think about what have I given to this year? Have I given more time to watching TV? Given more time to some hobby, playing basketball? Have I given more time to these things than I've given to a heartfelt, wholehearted, all-out striving to know Jesus better? <clears throat> to talk to him. To meditate on him. To hear his word to me. It's appropriate that we take account. And being realistic, we know that when we take account, we're going to fall short of the mark. We're imperfect, even in our best intentions. We're imperfect in our best performance. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Reformers knew the Roman Catholic Church was dead wrong about righteousness. Because, as you'll read in Calvin's Institutes, Calvin says, even our best efforts, our most sanctified efforts, are still stained with sin, still inconsistent. So we praise God for our sanctification, but we know that all that we do, we still need the righteousness of Christ added to it, or it's unacceptable to God. We know that our performance will be flawed, and thus we try to make a break with past inadequacies and to realize new and better objectives. The Christian outlook is not to say, I know my performance is flawed, it always will be flawed, so I don't care about the flaws. You see, that is sub-Christian. No, it's anti-Christian thinking. It's really superstitious thinking. It's thinking that somehow God doesn't care about the flaws. He sent His Son to take care of them, and so I can go ahead and be flawed. The Roman Catholic said, the Protestant church gets off the ground. That's what's going to happen. People are not going to care about their lives. Well, that doesn't follow biblically that we don't care about our lives and we don't strive for godliness just because we look to an alien righteousness for our acceptance before God. But so often Protestants have given Roman Catholics the right to think that that criticism was right on target. We are flawed. We will always be flawed. But for the glory of God, I will strive in His power and by His grace to remove them as much as possible. And that's why we make resolutions for the future. We don't accept the past for what it is. We do expect the future to be better. And because it reminds us that time is passing, it turns out that New Year's Day is a convenient and an appropriate time to stop and take account and to make those resolutions. 
We realize when we have to turn the calendar that time's moving on. So this is as good a time. We could do this in July, of course, but it turns out that most of us have thoughts about resolutions for the future as we change the calendar on New Year's Day. Now it only takes a moment's uh, reflection to realize that if we can individually make resolutions for the future, and we should as God's people, we can also corporately make resolutions for the future. As a congregation, we can stop and take account of our collective life as God's people, looking for ways that we can improve in the new year ahead of us. After all, the Bible offers imperatives and exhortations just as readily and just as directly to congregations of believers as it does to individual believers. That's one of the massive failures of the evangelical church in the 20th century. We have so individualized the grace of God, and it is for individuals, so that's not the problem. But we've so excessively stressed God's relationship to the individual, we don't see that so often. You notice the, the books of the Bible are often written to congregations. And then we take what's written to the congregation and we're supposed to personalize and individualize it. But remember, its first intention was for the body of Christ. We often don't think in terms of congregation or body life as we should. Today, I hope we will. Because as a congregation, I'd like us to make some New Year's resolutions. As a congregation, we should stop to see, as a whole, how we are doing in our Christian life. And that process may be a little bit painful. Obviously, we see our individual shortcomings, we make resolutions about them, but we do that in private. No one knows how much we have to admit before God we've really flubbed up. But we do that publicly, and especially one, one person speaking for the congregation speaks to the congregation, then it can tend to be a little embarrassing or a little painful. I don't mean it to be that. As you know, I tend to be rather upbeat in my outlook. That's because I'm a post-millennialist, right? Actually, it's because I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe that he's given us some, some promises about the future. But when I say these things, I don't say them because I want you to feel badly. I say them because I want you to feel good about turning away from those things that hurt us or hurt you. The slight pain, I think, is worthwhile, for it leads us to a more satisfying and a God-glorifying life as a congregation. So please remember that nothing I'm going to say this morning is um, any less relevant to any one of you than to any other. That is the kind of roundabout way of telling you I'm not preaching at individuals today. Okay, so as you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, all week long the pastor, he aimed this arrow right at me. Well, when you feel that way, I want you to remember that there are a lot of other people in the congregation thinking I'm doing that to them too. So it is not for any individual that I say these things. And also remember that anything that I say, everything that I say, hopefully is constructively calculated to build us up as a congregation, not tear us down. Uh, those of you who know my ministry, know my habits, know that I have a great appreciation for the Puritans, but that appreciation doesn't mean I've you know, closed my mind to some of their foibles. And one of the Puritans, sadly, was their tendency to be uh, very destructive in their criticism of themselves. They're very hard on themselves. That can be good, 
But see, that's where you leave it. If it's just always the face and the dust and woe is me, then we've you know, missed a good portion of the Christian life. And I know I'm overdrawing the picture when I put it that way, but I don't want us to be Puritans in, in that sense. I want us to be constructive in our criticism to go beyond the failure, failure, failure acknowledgement to the God is making it better acknowledgement. Revelation 2 verses 1 to 7 is our text for this morning. And the New Testament often addresses the spiritual life and the special problems of congregations as a whole. And if you read Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus sends seven letters, an individual letter to seven different churches in Asia Minor, you notice that while he addresses the congregation as a whole, he addresses each one individually. For every individual has its own, every individual congregation has its democratic problems and strengths. God takes account of that, and we should too. We're not a vanilla, you know, uh, congregation. We have a particular flavor. We're not uh, the generic Christian church here. We call ourselves, you know, the Grace Presbyterian Church. And by the way, other names would be equally appropriate. But the point is, Grace Presbyterian Church has its own unique strengths and weaknesses, just like other congregations as well. There are no generic Christian congregations. And so when Jesus writes to the church, he takes account of what is true about that church, positively and negatively. Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor all contain the same basic literary pattern. You might want to read that for yourself this week and take note of it. Each one begins with reading to the angel, which I interpret to mean to the messenger or the pastor. Each one then goes on to a special identification of Christ as the sender. These things saith he who, and then you get a description of Jesus Christ. Each one contains a commendation. There's one that doesn't, but this is the general pattern. I know thy works. Each one, minus one, contains a criticism. But I have this against thee. Each contains a warning and an exhortation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And each one contains a promise for overcoming their problems and triumphing in the Lord. It's really quite a beautiful piece from a literary standpoint with that structure with each letter. Although all of the seven letters have valuable and important things to say to us, I think it's the first letter, the letter to Ephesus, that can be viewed as particularly relevant to our own situation here in this congregation. Stop and ask yourself, what kind of congregation do we have? What is it that we excel at? What are we known for? What do we see as important? What do we give priority? I want to suggest that when we answer those kinds of questions, we're going to see reflected in our own congregation what was found in the church at Ephesus when John penned this letter for Jesus in the book of Revelation. The Ephesian congregation was commended by Christ as I, the servant of Christ, would commend you here in this congregation for its toil, its hard work, and its steadfastness in not bearing with evil behavior and not bearing with false teaching. Look at verse 2. 
Jesus says, I know thy works and thy toil and steadfastness, that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them to call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. The Ephesian church was strong in orthodoxy. And when people presented teaching that was false and even claimed it was apostolic, they said, no way. They were right on it. <clears throat> and they were not afraid of the rebuke and the ridicule and the reproach of men for engaging in church discipline. I'm not just setting you all up for the criticism that's coming. I mean this from the heart. I love your testimony. And I think God honors it. And I give you commendation in Christ's name that you are willing to practice church discipline in this congregation. It is a scandal in the Christian church today that people who live in open adultery can take the Lord's Supper. It is a scandal in, in the evangelical church today that people who don't believe what the Bible teaches and compromise it can nevertheless hold positions and preach from the pulpit. It is a scandal in the church today that there are people who should be excommunicated, suspended, who nevertheless are not even approached by the elders, if there are elders, or their membership question, if there is such a thing as membership, because we wouldn't want to do anything that's unpopular. It's a scandal that here, right here in Orange County, we can have somebody who in one of the largest pulpits here can tell people we no longer can preach the doctrine of sin like Paul did. That won't work today. This is the day of modern psychology. It's a scandal in the evangelical church that so many people who preach do not expound the word of God. They give us personal psychology to feed our souls. And on and on it can go. So I commend you. You are not afraid to practice church discipline and you have the standards by which to do it. Praise God for that. For the honor of Christ's name, the Ephesian church bore the reproach of that discipline and they did not grow weary. Verse 3 says, And thou hast steadfastness and didst bear for my name's sake and hast not grown weary. You know, we tend to think maybe it's just in the 20th century that churches that practice discipline undergo ridicule and reproach. You know what people say about you? What they say about me? This is not a personal remark. I mean, I'm not too concerned about that anymore. But you need to know that you are considered legalistic out there. People think that this congregation, they're a bunch of hard-nosed people. I say, how to come to know us? I always ask people, you know, when I hear that, I say, how many people do you know in this congregation? Well, that's just the reputation they have. I say, yeah, and it's an unjust one, and it's ungodly, and it's untrue. But you are known for that. Why? Because you hold high the Word of God and a willingness to practice it and to discipline. But we tend to think, well, boy, we've come into such a bad time. You know, 100 years ago, we'd fit in a lot better. Let me give you some bad news. Back in the days in which this book was written, in the first century, already the Ephesian church was bearing reproach for Christ's name because they did this. And Jesus says, I love you because you don't grow weary. I love you because you're more for honoring me than you do honoring the opinion of men. This diligence for doctrinal and ethical purity was something which the Ephesians had for the good 
it's that Christ recognized in them. And he did so with pride and with pleasure. Look at verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's a very um, hard analogy that I want to share with you. It's, it's difficult, but... Um, but I know on a human plane, limited, inconsistent, I realize that, not at all the purity of what Christ feels. But I know what it's like when you have been wounded or hurt by somebody, or you've been wronged by somebody, and then there's a third party that says, well, I can be friends with you and with this person who has wounded you. And I'm very honest with you, because our world is not honest. No, you can't. For if you love me, then you detest those who hurt me and will not repent. We're not talking about, you know, the kinds of family squabbles or political squabbles that, you know, are never resolved in the mercy and the grace of God. But when people wrong you, and then somebody who's one of your friends says, oh, what's well, perfectly all right. That's between the two of you. That doesn't affect me. We say, yeah, it does affect you. Because now our relationship has been weakened, maybe lost. Because if you love me, you love the things I love, or at least you respect the things I love, and you don't bear with those who hurt me. That's just a reality. I realize that in our world, we try to cover that over. And probably uh, people don't think that well of me. I say, well, what kind of Christian attitude is that? I'll tell you what kind it is. It's the kind of attitude that Jesus says here. He says, you know, this I have for him, that you hate what I hate. And when people offend me, you take offense in my name. Now we should expect Jesus to have that attitude. He tells us in Matthew 25, he says, inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Jesus takes offense when people offend me. Should I not take offense when people offend him? Well, of course I should. And so Jesus commends the Ephesian congregation. I believe he would, he would commend you. He says, you take offense when people speak contrary to me. You take offense when people walk out of the way of truth and orthodoxy. You take offense when their lives are impure. And I commend you for that diligence in doctrine, that diligence in life. We are to think Christ's thoughts after him. We're to imitate his attitude. And Jesus is not happy with unordered teaching. He's not happy with ungodly living. We shouldn't be happy with them either. But the Ephesian church, having this very strong commendation, nevertheless needed to recognize that Christ deserved and desired much more from them than what they were giving. And you do too. You need to realize that. That Jesus deserves more than what you're giving. He certainly deserves more than what I'm giving, so let me just beat you to the punch. What right do I have to say this to you? None. Except that God has ordained me to be His servant and you have put yourself under the ministry of the word, 
And so please evaluate the truth of what I'm saying and don't evaluate the messenger because I'll tell you right out, I'm preaching to me too. Jesus deserves more from us than we're giving. Truth and discipline are indispensable virtues in a Christian congregation, but they are not sufficient. Indispensable but not sufficient virtues for a congregation. If they were sufficient, stop and think about this, God could have gotten by with computers that were programmed with only the right information. You know, you've worked real hard in studying your systematic theology, reading your Bibles, getting purity of the faith. But God could have gotten, if that's all God wanted, he could have called computers to be his children, programmed them with the truth, and then everything would be fine. God could have gotten by with airport detector devices that squawk when unrepentant sins are carried into the church. Wouldn't that be great? We could put them at these two doors here. You know, so when we walk in and we've lived lives this week that are not been pleasing to God, then they go, Mah! people say, okay, you go home, you can't be in this church. Unrepentant sins, get out of here. So we could have the airport sin detector devices and our computers programmed with all the right information and boy, wouldn't we have a great congregation then? Well, you know it's tongue-in-cheek of being asinine. No, it wouldn't be a great congregation. No, that wouldn't be sufficient. And Christ has this against the Ephesian congregation. For all of its doctrinal truth, for all of its church discipline, He says, this is what I have against you. I'm going to give you a moment to look at your Bible because I want this to sink in good. I want you to read it. You tell me, what is it in one short phrase that Jesus has against this church? As you read through that, what does Jesus say I have against you? Verse 4. Jesus says, you've done a good job in many ways, but I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Just so you don't misunderstand the English expression, what this means is not that they have a number of loves and Jesus was their first and forgotten that. No, he means you've forgotten how you loved at the first. They had abandoned they love, the love that they had for Jesus at the opening of their Christian lives. Despite their emphasis on sound teaching, Despite their emphasis on church discipline, the initial enthusiasm, the initial devotedness, the initial thoughtfulness, the initial eagerness, the initial piety, the initial joyfulness which they displayed at the outset of their Christian experience was waning they had become headstrong and heart weak. And I think that's true of me and you in this congregation as well. In two ways, I think we all have to tearfully acknowledge that the way we were enthusiastic for the Christian life when we were first converted is often a memory. Not something we wake up with every day. 
the way in which we would make Jesus the top priority in our lives. We would still say that, but we know the doctrinally right thing to say. But that isn't what would turn up in an objective analysis of our real desires, our real efforts. And a second way I think it's true that this congregation has lost its first love too if we just think about our initial life as a congregation, there's no hiding the fact we don't need to be coy with each other. This congregation was born in adversity and strife, with heartache. But you know, for all of that, and I wouldn't want to relive it, and I wouldn't want you to relive it, for all of that, you know what those terrible days did? They bonded us to each other, didn't they? And we didn't care what kind of rebuke. We didn't care how hard the circumstances were. We were determined to stand together and to love one another and to support each other through it. And God be praised, and I commend you, you did. But you know, now that we've come down the line a couple of years, have we fallen into maybe a rut? Now we're just like one of those regular churches, right? That just goes through the routine, goes through the motions, I'm giving you a caricature. This is not true. There's a great deal that could be said in your favor. But the fact is that once you go past those initial days of persecution and adversity and things start getting a little more comfortable, we tend also to forget the way we loved at first. And so this morning, I want to call you all as a congregation back to your first love. And by that, I mean the way you loved when you were first converted. As a congregation, the way we had a zeal for godliness, and for righteousness, and for brotherly compassion, outreach, the kind of life we had as a congregation when we were first formed in the providence of God. We at Grace Presbyterian place a commendable emphasis upon doctrinal insight and truth and righteousness in not only the personal realm, but in the social realm as well. And we strive for biblical orthodoxy. We're willing to endure reproach for operating on principle rather than convenience. We do believe in discipline. And we have a message for the world. And we're not self-righteous about that, but we're proud that God has given us something good that we can give to other people. Our doctrine is reformed. It's biblical. It's apostolic. Our doctrine is covenantal. Our ethic is true to the teaching of God's word. Our government is according to the head of the church and it's Presbyterian. We have so much going for us. But do we love God? Do we love people the way we did at first? Is our devotion, is our enthusiasm, is our heartfelt concern the same as when we came to the Lord when we came to enjoy the fellowship of his people here at this church or have we abandoned the way we loved at first our congregation has extraordinary theological strength knowledge and yet for all of that the problems that we endure as individuals and as a church are completely ordinary I commend you for your theological strength I do not commend you for the fact that your theological strength has not made you extraordinary 
in terms of the way in which you live your lives. For all of our smarts, we have the same weaknesses as others, don't we? What can we do to improve our congregational life? What can we do to give a holy zeal for God's glory and a burning concern souls of men to our church? How can our orthodoxy be given life and warmth, enthusiasm? How can we progress as a congregation into a more full-orbed expression of the body of Christ? What ways can we improve and show our love for Christ? That kind of love that first possessed us when we came to know Him and when we came to know one another. What would Christ like to see in this new year for our congregation? And I've chosen four general areas I want to suggest as we're closing here for resolutions that I hope each and every one of you will make. First of all, let us resolve to worship God reverently. Secondly, let us resolve to love fervently. Third, let us resolve to learn constantly. And fourth, let us resolve to grow significantly. At the end of this year, I want us to look back as a congregation, not just as individuals. I want us to measure our progress. We are not going to gain glorification and perfection this year. But remember, our reasoning is not, so we're going to be flawed, we accept our flaws. The fact is, as inconsistent as we may be in a year, let's hope that we've made progress. I already, earlier in the service, reminded you, that can be done. We now recite the law of God to one another. A year ago, many of you thought, boy, Dr. Bonson is really kind of pedagogically off the marker. He thinks we're going to be able to do it. Well, we're doing it. Progress can be made, and I hope progress will be made in these four areas. Let us first resolve to worship reverently. I know it's tough to focus attention in a room like this. This is not your, you know, you don't have all of the smells and bells and stained glass windows and all of the things that help people be in a reverent mood. Yeah, but you know, many churches that depend upon those external circumstances don't have anything to put in their church to help you. That you have. How do we enter? Do we come on time? Do we prepare our hearts for worship? Do we finally wake up enough that we can feel joyful? Do we even, uh-oh, as Presbyterians, dare tap our foot when we sing because we're getting excited? Do we have the experience of feeling God's love when we sing? You know, we have a tendency to put those things there because we wouldn't want to be, I don't know, what is it we don't want to be? Is it undignified to be happy, to praise God? Well, if it is, heaven's going to be a pretty undignified place. When you come in, prepare your heart to worship God. To be reverent before Him, to be joyful before Him, to open your heart to others and to love them for His sake. How do we pray when we're led in our pastoral prayer? Where are our minds when we read the Scripture? We all need more consistent church attendance. We need to make that a priority. We need to recognize that church attendance, though it is a great privilege, is also a responsibility and it's not an optional one. We need to be regular in attendance, 
certainly if others are going to be convinced of its necessity, we need to illustrate that in our own lives. So let's resolve to worship reverently. And let's evaluate ourselves at the end of next year. We may not yet have the saxophones in here with the accompaniment that Dr. Bonson keeps talking about, but the day is coming when we're going to be so happy to worship God that that's just going to be the free expression of our hearts. Secondly, let us resolve to love fervently. You've already heard this previously, but I'm going to remind you, this congregation is geographically dispersed. I don't think that's going to change. You're not all going to move into my neighborhood, and I'm not planning to move. I know we're going to stay geographically dispersed. Now, that doesn't have to be a terrible thing. After all, we live in the late 20th century. We have telephones. We do have computer networks. We do have cars, automobiles. If we are committed to the life of this congregation, then let's be committed to overcome the geographical distance. To use a basketball expression, let's pay the price. If we want to win, you know, if we want to attain our goals, then we're going to pay the price. And let's show the loyalty that is befitted to the congregation, not to the preacher. You have a commitment to one another as God's people. And God may remove your preacher in any number of ways. I'm not being morbid, but you all know I have bad health. He may take me out this week. You know that I'm often not here because of my ministry taking me to other places. And though I'm not unmindful of the history of the congregation and very grateful to you all for the way in which we gather together and you do hear my preaching, you know not honor me if that's why you came to this church. You need to be committed to one another for Christ's sake. Let us resolve to love each other fervently. Make a point of helping out in the congregation. You'd be amazed at all the little things that have to be done to keep even a small program running. What are you doing to help us? Talk to everyone. Show hospitality to everyone. Now we try to stimulate that. You know, the fourth Lord's Day of every month, we have a little sheet that tells us who you might invite to your house, just to make sure that is not intended to be mechanical or ritual. It's just to make sure that we see each other, all of one another, every year, maybe every quarter. But you know, our fellowship can't simply be by suggestion. It's got to come from the heart as well. And as we don't have a place in the province of God where we have a kitchen that can have our fellowship meals, boy, for these weeks or months, whatever it's going to be in God's providence, you ought to really be making use of your Lord's Day afternoons to show hospitality to each other, to know one another. And attend the socials of the church and the other functions. I really, um, I really am distressed when I hear people say, as I recently heard someone say, I just don't feel close to anyone. And it turns out that that person doesn't hardly ever show up at the functions of the church. Now, that's not meant to step on anybody's toes, but I mean, think, isn't just common sense? If you keep a distance from people, you're not going to feel close to those people. And sometimes you've got to keep making yourself available for friendship. You can't push friendship on people, but you know, eventually those things, they, they grow up, they blossom. But they don't if you're at a distance. You need to engage in intelligent prayer for each other during the week. 
and don't let a week go without seeing or talking to others in the congregation during the week. You see, membership in this congregation is not a reality only on the Lord's Day. You're going to be members of the church on Tuesday, too. But you act more like it on Sunday. Act like it all week long. Let's make this year a year where we learn to love fervently. Thirdly, let us also resolve to learn constantly. Two quick suggestions. First of all, lay out for yourself a, a, a program of study. Maybe some area of theology, maybe reading through a portion or all of the Bible, whatever it may be. But in the process of giving yourself a New Year's resolution for study, resolve to do two things for the congregation. Come to Bible study during the week. I realize there are things that get in the way. We get sick and we have special programs and we have out-of-town guests and all that. No problem. And it is not a moral obligation. It's simply an opportunity for growth. But take that opportunity as much as you possibly can. Be there. Be there to pray with one another. Be there so we can study together and our minds will be on the same thing. Secondly, I would suggest as the pastor goes through um, sermon series as we're going through First Peter, it so happens in our congregation now, make a point of reading before you come to church. And when the pastor says, you've noticed, I say this often, I say, this afternoon, make sure you do the following. Read this, or reflect on that, or pray about this. Do those things. You know, that's just not some kind of rhetorical flourish. I mean it. Go home and do the things that I suggest for you to do. Turn the Lord's Day into a real day of growth. Don't look upon Sunday as a time that you come to church and you put in your time, and now it's over, and I've got my own things to do. See, that's the violation of the Lord's Day. Even if you're doing things which in and of themselves are not a violation of the Lord's Day, that attitude is offensive to God. This is not your day. It is His. Of course, every day is Christian fellowship, and you can't worship, and you don't have time to read your Bible. I'm giving you a whole day for those things. Use this day for that. So when the pastor says, write it down and do it. Because then at the end of the Lord's Day, you can say, boy, this whole day has been tied together. I have really taken a step forward. Praise God for that. Let's resolve to learn constantly. As a congregation, come to Bible study. Be constant in your attendance at church. Be attentive. Prepare ahead of time. Prepare, or not prepare, follow it up afterwards with the suggestions that are given that we continue to grow. And fourthly, let's resolve to grow significantly. We have something worth we have something worth giving up stained glass windows. We have something worth the inconvenience of distance. We have something in this congregation, as small as we are, we shouldn't say it with personal pride, but with congregational pride and Lord, we have something really good to share with people. Why don't we start living like that? Let's get enthusiastic about getting out of this room, getting into a more adequate facility, and inviting people to come, and following up when they are there. Let us significantly grow in this year. And we will not significantly grow as long as you think, boy, I'm sure glad there are other people that invite individuals to church. That's the problem, you see, is that everybody thinks other people are doing the inviting and the evangelizing and so forth. You need to do that. 
it's great when you invite people that are looking for a good church. We need to do that and to keep doing that. But you need to be inviting people who need to hear the gospel too. Now, are you going to tell me, each and every one of you, whatever age level, whatever position in life, are you going to tell me that you never run into people who are looking for a decent church or who need to know the Lord? Okay? How many hundreds do you think you run into? I mean, it is hundreds if you stop and think about it. And of those hundreds, how many did you invite to worship with you this week or any time during this past year? Well, next to that question, let's hope we have a better answer than we do this morning. Let's grow significantly this year. Sometimes when you do marriage counseling, <clears throat> you sadly have to remind a husband and a wife who have fallen out of love with each other <coughs> of what it was that first got them together. I've had people come into my office and lay out all their problems and how they're unable to resolve them and the lack of peace in their relationship and so forth. And it's led me to say, not at all trying to be cutting, but all honesty with realism to say, why did you ever get married in the first place? And you know, the, the terrible thing is sometimes when you do that, you let people say, exactly, I don't know why we ever got married. I hate this relationship. I say it was calculated to remind you that there was a reason why you first got married. And if you felt about her the way you felt then, you would have the motivation and you'd have the insight to solve your problems. As a congregation, we need to hear that too. We need to go back and remember how we first loved Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the grace and power you demonstrate in our lives individually, and I thank you for this congregation, what you've done corporately for us. And Lord, I pray that nothing that has been said today in this message will take away from those positive accomplishments, those things which are to be commended, those things which are pleasing to you. And yet, Lord Jesus, we confess as a people that we don't love you the way we used to. We ask that you would stir us up to that kind of love again. We ask that you'd make us mindful of where we've been in this last year of the congregation and where you want us to go in this next year and just to live up to these resolutions that we have made. May we follow them diligently and for your sake. May we be able to say in a year's time, that we really have regained a love for you and an enthusiasm, a devotion, a loyalty, and a spirit of self-sacrifice that once came very naturally to us. Stir us up to that end, we pray. In your most blessed name, amen. Our hymn of response is number 610.